for the reading of God's word. We're picking up where Pastor Brian left off last week, which is in Romans chapter 9. We're actually going to overlap a little bit. I'm going to start with the last verse that he read last week, which is verse 16. So we're going to go from verse 16 to verse 24. And uh, I told the folks up in paradise this this morning, buckle up. Here we go. Verse 16 starts with this. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Lord, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Lord God, we're, we're approaching a challenging passage of scripture today, one that's hard to hear and hard to understand. And I just pray that in it all, you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to be pleasing in your sight. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys go ahead and be seated. So uh, here's the first thing that I think I want to say as we get started today, and this will especially hopefully be helpful maybe to some of you guys that are newish or new to Vespers. We we sort of have a philosophy when it comes to how we, we preach the scripture here at Vespers. Um, it's a philosophy that sometimes carries the label expository. We're committed to expository preaching. And what that means is that when, when Brian and I, we come into the office on Monday, getting ready for next week's worship service, we, we don't choose a topic that we wanna preach on. And we don't take a current event that we want to talk about, or we don't prepare a motivational speech. What we do instead is, is we've committed to, to going through portions of the Bible, books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So when I come in tomorrow into the office, I'm going to know that next week we're going to look starting at Romans 9, verse 25 and beyond. We want to walk through these books and exposit them, which is simply to explain what they mean and apply those truths to our lives. And we let what guides us not be sort of the, the news of the day, but rather what comes up next in God's word. We're doing that with Romans. We've been in it for almost two years now. We did it with 1 Samuel beforehand. Some of you guys going way back remember when we went through the minor prophets at the old building at Vespers. That was pretty wild. <laughs> 
But we, we, we're committed to that for a few different reasons. But one of the main reasons is what you've just experienced here this evening. And that is when, when we commit ourselves to preaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible, what happens automatically is that we are forced to engage portions of the scripture that we might not choose if it was just purely up to us to say, what are we gonna preach on this week? If it's just up to me when I come into the office on Monday, I'm gonna choose a text that feels safe to me. One that either is, you know, kind of, a, it's a hobby horse of mine that I love talking about, or maybe one that I know is, is just, just broadly applicable to everyone and everyone's gonna love it, or a text that's soothing and comforting to where we are. But what happens with preaching through the Bible verse by verse is that you're guaranteed to have days like this where you're presented with a passage to wrestle with as a church that we probably wouldn't have chosen if it was just up to us. And, and, and based on some of the conversations I've had with people that are reading maybe Romans 9 for the first time ever in their Christian life, that's probably true in lots of churches across the world that we don't naturally gravitate to places like this. So we need the grace of God using the discipline, like going through the Bible piece by piece to show us it's parts of his word that we need desperately to know and can't neglect. I, I've spoken about this just briefly um, here and there over the years. And usually when I do, I, I have one passage of scripture that I like to kind of throw out. And it's actually a passage of scripture that will tell you where the, where the title of today's sermon comes from. So it's in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul, the same Paul who wrote our letter to the Romans here, he's giving his farewell address to these group of elders at the church in Ephesus, a group of elders that he's trained, that he's discipled, and now he's leaving them to care for the church in his absence. And in the midst of him talking to them, he has this one thing he says that's always just been tattooed on my brain as a preacher. He says this, he says, I did not neglect to make known to you the whole counsel of God. He says, my conscience is clear because in the years that I was with you, I presented to you the whole counsel of God, all of it. We didn't avoid the parts we didn't wanna talk about. We didn't just gravitate to the ones that were easy for you or for us. We looked at it all. And I've often thought that my hope as a pastor is that when, when it's time for me to hang up my hat as a pastor, to retire, whether that's in the near future or the long away future, I hope by God's grace, I can look at you, the congregation and say, I did not neglect to make known to you the whole counsel of God, the parts of it that were soothing, the parts of it that were challenging, the parts that appeared like they were totally irrelevant and not practical to our lives and the part that were just a word on target, exactly what we needed in that moment. The parts that were beautiful to us in the moment, but also the parts that stung and made us mad. All of it, the whole counsel of God. is what we need as God's people, even as difficult as that can be in some moments. 
And one of those moments might be this one. Because if you were paying attention, excuse me, attention to this text, you notice that there were some verses in here that were incredibly challenging. That may, might have even made some of you guys mad. I, I used uh, the language that, that Brian introduced to us last week when he was looking at the verses before these, when he talked about there's parts of it that sting. Well, this had some stinging parts too. At least, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm putting words into your mouth. You don't feel that way. I, I'm reflecting on my own experience. I became a Christian when I was 18 years old. It was my first year of college, and my first order of business was to read through the New Testament from the beginning to end, Matthew through Revelation. I had grown up in the church, and so I had heard bits and pieces of verses and sermon texts uh, all throughout my life, but I had never just read it as a whole. And I loved it. Reading through the Gospels, it was just eye-opening to see Jesus in, in, in context, the, the full breadth of his ministry. And then I got to the book of Acts, and it was amazing. It blew my mind. And then I'm getting to Romans, which was the best of all. Romans chapter 8, I'm just like, just savoring and feasting upon. And then I hit Romans 9. I read the text that we had today that I read out loud to you guys and said, wait, what? <laughs> what? How is this God's word? What, why would anybody, let alone the apostle Paul, ever speak about God's activity and salvation like this? How is that fair? How is that just? How is this right? It made me mad. And since I had been reading through the Gospels right before that, I remembered the portions where Jesus would say something to the crowds and they would, they would respond by saying, this is a difficult saying, who can understand it? And many of them would leave. So I imagine that maybe some of you guys are feeling that same way as, as we read through this passage today. And, and, and just as a reminder, what, what am I talking about here? Verse 18 is a great example of it. And I, I think I might have it underlined on the, on the slides there, Brad. So then, he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's the sting. If you are feeling that sting, I want to plead with you to hang in there today. Don't check out. Don't run away in your mind. Don't just close the book on this and go somewhere else. Please, please, please be willing to stick in this with me for a bit, to hear from God's word. I'm not saying that I'm going to be able to take this thing away or explain it in a way that everybody leaves and be like, oh yeah, Romans 9's easy now. No. But like we just talked about, this is part of the whole counsel of God. It's part of the scripture that we confess as a church together with many other Christian churches that it is God-breathed, inspired by him, living and active, good for teaching, reproof, correction, training and godliness. We need to pay attention to what his word says. Secondly, though, the reason I want you to hang in there with me is because I think that if we are willing to listen and pay attention to the word of God, even the difficult parts, 
we will see God-exalting beauty in it. We will see gospel, grace-deepening truth in it. It will lead us to worship. So, Let's take a little bit of a closer look. I've got uh, sort of a, a division for you guys. I broke it down into three different blocks. The first one is Pharaoh's heart. The second one is God's purpose. And the final one, which is gonna kind of serve as our conclusion is the clay's question or the question of the clay. That's, that sounds more sophisticated and cool. The question of the clay. So we'll go with that. But we start with Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh is brought up in our text today, it was verse 17. We're told that for the scripture says to Pharaoh, who is Pharaoh? You guys tell me. Yeah, has to do with Egypt, good. What's that? Yeah, that's right. This particular Pharaoh um, is the one that Moses encountered in the story of the Exodus. The Pharaoh is the, the ruler, the, the, the big man in charge over all of Egypt. And there's this narrative in the Bible and a whole book is named after it, the Exodus, that tells about how God's people had found themselves in bondage and slavery in Egypt. They had been like that for hundreds of years, but God hears their prayer and he raises up this man, Moses, to, to, to go to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh, the leader, well, you see it up there on the screen, the famous phrase, let my people go. Now, Pharaoh doesn't respond very favorably to that. He basically hears, let my people go. And he says, uh, no, I don't think I will. And he actually says that a lot. He says, no, I'm not gonna let your people go, God. And then the next thing that happens is a plague is sent by God upon Egypt to get their attention. And Pharaoh says, hey, make it stop, make it stop. I will let the people go. And then it stops and then he changes his mind. That cycle rinses and repeats 10 times. Until finally, the final plague is the most devastating of all. It's the death of the firstborn throughout all of Egypt. And the only children, firstborn children that are spared are the ones that have the blood of the unblemished Passover lamb painted on their door. God's sign that he gave to his people is say, I'll pass over when I see this atoning blood. So this is the story of the Exodus. The reason though it's brought up here in Romans nine is because of the specific language that the book of Exodus uses to describe Pharaoh's resistance, his, his, his rejection of what God has says. The language is what we saw in verse 18 with this word harden. Pharaoh had a hardened heart. That language doesn't come out of nowhere. It sort of seems like that because it hasn't come up a lot in Romans, but the reason Paul starts using it now is because he's reflecting on the story of Pharaoh where multiple times throughout the story, we're told that Pharaoh said no because his heart was hardened. In fact, you see it up here on the screen. I've got an example from Exodus seven. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. That phrase is repeated multiple times all throughout this Exodus story. His heart was hardened. Now, there's a variation on it though that comes up throughout Exodus 2, and that's actually the next bullet point I have. Sometimes it reads like this, but when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he, 
that his Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to them. I wanted to bring this up just to let you know that sometimes when people discuss the story of the Exodus or even this portion of Romans, they really hone in on that distinction and say, what's happening here is that Pharaoh ultimately is responsible for his heart. He rejected God, he was resistant to God, he hardened his heart, so then God's hardening is a reaction to what Pharaoh had done prior. However, you guys just read Romans 9 with me, Paul's sort of interpretation of this story. That's not the conclusion he came to. That's not how he interprets this difference of phrasing. And maybe the reason why is because what Paul is thinking about when he writes in Romans 9 is not these instances of hardening that we see deeper into the story. He's actually thinking of the very first time it's mentioned in Exodus. Long before Moses ever meets Pharaoh, long before Moses even goes to Egypt, God calls him and he tells him what he's going to do. And you'll see it next on the next bullet point. It's from Exodus four. This is the Lord speaking. He says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I, the Lord will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's the first mention of it that we have in the whole story of the Exodus. And I believe it's what sets the table for all that follows. And I wish if I had been smarter when I was making these PowerPoints, I would have extended the verses that I have from Exodus 7 and Exodus 8 because what follows after each instance, when we say uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, he would not listen to them. The next phrase is, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. It's like every instance of this in Exodus is hearkening back to that that verse in Exodus 4 where God says, this is what I'm going to do. It seems that Paul's sort of interpretation in verse 18 when he says, God will have mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills, that he truly is drawing this from the experience of Pharaoh in Egypt. Now, one of the things that we need to mention is what a hardened heart is and means in the first place. But what does all this mean? We could talk about who's, who did it, God, Pharaoh, or just the, the passive verb, but what does it mean for someone to have a hardened heart? Well, it's pretty simple. It means a heart that is not receptive to the things of God, a heart that is, uh, is antagonistic towards faith and belief and worship that's resistant to accepting who God is and his leading. It's a disobedient heart. And we call it the hardened heart because it's like things just bounce off of it. Can't penetrate, God's word can't penetrate at all. It's actually a really apt metaphor to talk about resistance to the things of God, but it carries with it the potential for misunderstanding. Because when we talk about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, what many of us might think is that Pharaoh naturally had a soft heart that was open to the things of God, and then God changed him and made it hard. But you and I know that's not the case. We've been going through the book of Romans for years now, hopefully well enough to know that no one 
naturally has a soft heart that is open to the things of God. None of us are naturally inclined to have a heart of flesh that embraces the things of the Lord. We all, Romans 3.10, have gone astray. So what God did to Pharaoh was not to change him, was not to take a man who was excited about the things of God and all of a sudden make him not excited. What God did to Pharaoh is simply to allow him to continue in his hardness of heart and resistance toward the things of God. We, we've seen this before in Romans. Romans chapter one, I know it was a long time ago, but when we have this description of humanity spiraling down into just brokenness and depravity, there's this repetitive phrase that happens three times where God says, or excuse me, the Apostle Paul writing about God says, he gave them over to their lust and to their desires. He gave them over to their brokenness. He gave them over to their depravity. And the picture of one of, of God basically saying, hands off, I'm not gonna intervene. I'm not gonna stop you. I'm gonna let you humanity have what you want, even though I know that it's destructive for you. He doesn't intervene. And I think when we read here about what happened with Pharaoh, something very similar is happening. God is saying, I'm gonna allow Pharaoh to continue in his resistance to God and his hardness of heart. I'm not gonna intervene, I'm not gonna stop it. I'm gonna let it go into this calcification which it naturally was in to begin with. And far from that being an accident or a whim, what we're reading here is it's part of the sovereign freedom of God. Now, oh cool, you've got the, I really wanted to share this picture. This is a eighth century copy of a Syriac text of the Old Testament. Isn't that kind of cool? That's the story of uh, the illustration that goes the story with Moses and Pharaoh. Really, uh, Rory, I see you back there. I just did it just for you, buddy, so. Rory is, uh, I think he knows ancient Syriac. He'll probably pretend like he doesn't, but he does. So he could read that for us if we wanted him to. All right, but let's move on to the next slide because we need to hit this second one. I know I'm, ooh, boy, we need to boogie. So the second point, God's purpose. Verse 17 was the one that mentioned and brought up Pharaoh, but notice the quote that's given in connection with Pharaoh is one different than what we've seen so far. This quote actually comes from Exodus chapter nine, and it's right in the middle of the back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh and the plagues and let my people go, no, and you know, back and forth, back and forth. God at some point speaks through Moses and says this to Pharaoh. He says, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, so why is it that God had, had raised Pharaoh to a position of authority? Why had he raised him to this place of being the leader at this particular moment and this particular time? And why had God allowed him to remain in his hardened heart state? Well, according to this, it's so that God's power and glory might be displayed in Pharaoh's life. And so that the fame of his name might spread throughout the entire world. Whoa. 
what this means, guys, is that even hardness of heart and resistance to God is able to bring him glory and magnify his name. And if that just seems like it's totally nonsensical to you, let's just think for a second. Without Pharaoh's resistance to Moses, we would have had no occasion for the parting of the Red Sea where God miraculously brings his people out of bondage and slavery and protects them. Without Pharaoh's resistance, we would have had no occasion for the Passover. The Passover, which still is celebrated thousands of years later as a testament to God's faithfulness and goodness, a meal that we talk about every time we take the Lord's Supper here at church. We're seeing the truth of what God is saying. Pharaoh, I've raised you up even in your hardness of heart so that my name and glory would echo even throughout the generations. Because here we are 4,000 years later still talking about it. And this is especially important because it gives some context of, of maybe some of the most difficult verses in the text that we read tonight especially verse 22. Let me read it for us again. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? I'm not gonna lie to y'all. I wrestled with this particular verse all week long for many reasons, but one of the main ones is it is such an odd sentence structure. Brian and I were talking about this throughout the week that it's very strange to us that the verse is posed as a question. What if God, it's, it's not a, a statement of like, this is how God does it, but rather a question of what if God desiring to show his wrath. And, and I even went down the rabbit hole of dusting off some of my old Greek textbooks and trying to dig into that, um, which made me learn, one, I'm very rusty in my Greek skills. And two, uh, that just confused matters even more for me because <laughs> it turns out that this, this statement is even more complicated uh, in Greek, and that's why some of the English translations sort of slightly are nuanced in the way that they present it. So I, I just want to be upfront with you on that, that there is questions I still have about how to best read this verse, but one thing that I can say with confidence, and that is the point that it is trying to make is the same one that the analogy with Pharaoh was trying to make. And it's the truth that even in hardness of heart, God's name can and will be glorified. That even in resistance, his mercy and grace to his people will be amplified throughout the universe. And, and I think it's so hard sometimes when we think about election and God's call because it feels just so random to us, just so arbitrary, just so, what do you mean? God has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. What, what's the point? And we think it's just so random and empty, but the reality is there is purpose, God's purpose, 
that might be beyond our understanding or our capacity to solve the mystery on it. And yet we can know that what he's doing, just like what he did with Pharaoh, has a point. And somehow, some way, even hardness of heart can make it so that the whole universe resounds in his glory, his majesty, his justice, his goodness. And that even hardness of heart for those who don't believe can amplify the riches of his mercy, to use the language of our text, to those whom he has called. Whoa. Of course, that leads, if you're anything like me, to the question, how is that fair? How is that possibly just? How is that godlike? Well, Paul, he anticipates that we're going to ask that, doesn't he? We don't have to write it into the text. It's right there. Verse 19, you will say to me after this, why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? Do you hear the point on that? If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, if he hardened my neighbor's heart, how could he possibly hold them accountable for resisting him? Who can resist God's will? Well, if you're asking that question, that question of the clay, we're expecting an answer. We're expecting a solution. We're expecting Paul to, to ride to the rescue and, and flatten out the mystery for us and answer all our questions. And here's what we get. Who are you, O man? That is, O human, O creature, O mortal. Who are you to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Will the clay say to the potter, why this and not that? We don't get a solution. We don't get an explanation. All we get is the pointed reminder that we're not God. And therefore we cannot judge his ways with any certainty. I was reminded as I looked at this this week the story of Job. You remember Job? The righteous, godly, upright man who uh, by God's permission finds his life turned upside down in devastating ways. And throughout the whole book of Job, he and his friends are dialoguing, talking. His friends are terrible. <laughs> the best thing they did was at the beginning when it says they just sat with him in silence for a whole week. But then they started talking and things went downhill quick. Things also kind of go downhill as Job is talking. Starts off okay, but as it keeps going, Job gets closer and closer and closer to basically saying, God, you are wrong for this. This is not fair, what you've done in my life, what you've allowed. This is not just. And at the very end of the book, God shows up to answer Job and his response is, is very long, and yet it probably could be boiled down to what we just read in Romans 9. Who are you, O Job, to answer back to God? Now, I had a professor in, in uh, uh, my bachelor's degree when I was an undergraduate, 
It's an Old Testament survey course. And he basically said that Job was the worst book of the Bible because God is such a bully in it. And he was responding to this, being like, what a bully move to have this guy that's hurting and devastated asking questions. And God basically shows up at the end and says, just sit down and shut up and don't ask questions. That's how he interpreted it. But I remember when I became a Christian and started reading through the Bible, like I told you about more thoroughly, reading the end of Job and being like, that's not what happened at all. God actually speaks to Job at length and he begins to tell Job all about these matters of, of justice, these dynamics of what's fair and right and righteous and good that probably just made Job's head explode because they were so far beyond anything he had ever fathomed or dreamed of. God was basically unveiling to Job that there is so much more that Job had no awareness of. I told the folks up in paradise this morning that my thinking of it this week was almost like when God speaks to Job, it's almost like Job is a two-dimensional stick figure and God starts talking to him about like three dimensions. And the stick figure is just like, what is going on? And he knows then and there enough to realize that his human perspective is so limited. His conception of what true justice should be is so limited to all that God knows. But who, he is, who is he to lecture God on what is right? Job ultimately is humbled into silence, not because he's been bullied into it, but because he realizes who he is and who God is and that he can trust him. I say that to you guys because I kind of want to end with y'all knowing that when you read through a text like this and you see that, who are you, oh man, oh woman, to question God? That is not God telling you to sit down and shut up and don't ask questions. No. Do you know the name Israel, God's chosen people, the name literally means those who wrestle with God. We are a people who are called upon to wrestle with God, to lament, to cry out to him, to say, I don't get this, I don't know this. This passage is not telling you not to wrestle and struggle with him. What it's telling you is to be mindful of your posture when you do so. And if you ever find yourself in a place where your wrestling with God becomes you lecturing him on what's right and wrong, of you sitting in judgment on him and saying, this isn't really just. Let me tell you, God, what the better approach would be. If that's where your questioning leads you, then you've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten that you are a human being, that you're a creature, that you are the clay in the hands of the potter, that even your thoughts about justice and what is right and wrong are sustained moment by moment by your creator. And so what that leads you to instead is to wrestle with a text like this, to ask hard questions, to have sleepless nights, to have moments of prayer but to have it in a way where your heart is open towards what God is teaching and ready to hear and be taught by him about 
what his definitions of who he is, what his definition of justice is, what his definition is what of good is. Do you realize that, that as a people, we have a conception of who God is, or maybe more accurately say, who we want God to be, that's shaped by so many different influences in our life. The things we watch on TV, the music we listen to, the few Bible verses maybe that we came across in a devotional. And we have this conception of God and we protect it like it's our child. It's precious to us and we defend anything that would change it. But we come to a passage like this and all of a sudden, maybe that conception of who we want God to be is challenged. And we come to a crossroads and we have to say, what's more precious to me? My thought about who God should be or what, who he says he actually is in his word and the whole counsel of God. What do I want more? You're gonna leave here tonight and I know many of you guys are gonna be wrestling and struggling with this passage. I will too. But I hope that in that struggle, you will come with the posture of one, not lecturing God, but one saying, show me who you are. Conform my conception of you to what it truly is. So that to come back to where we started, this scripture would exalt God in my mind in bigger ways than I ever dreamed of and deepen my understanding of his grace and mercy to his people. It might sound crazy to you to think that Romans 9 could do that, but it can. God's word can. I'm sorry, I've, I've gone long. I knew that, I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you, I knew that coming in, that this was gonna be a little bit longer sermon tonight just because of the nature of the text. So, do you forgive me? I wanted to ask forgiveness rather than permission. Um, but especially if those of you guys, I know, like I said, a lot of new faces tonight, you're probably like, oh my gosh, does the preacher always just ramble on and on and on? Hopefully no, hopefully usually I'm, uh, right on time, but tonight was a little bit longer. Um, thank you for sticking with me. Let's pray. Father, please use the words of scripture to shape our thinking and to do that thing that we, we, we asked for, that we longed for as we sat in this time, that you would make yourself exalted in our thinking in our vision so that we see the fuller picture of your majesty. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things, amen.